First Kings chapter five. We're going to cover verses five through nine. I am not going to read all of those chapters, not every verse. In fact, I'm going to skip around quite a bit because these are the temple building chapters. If you've ever tried to read the whole Bible, you know there are certain parts that are harder than others to get through. Not because the words are difficult, but because it's just it's hard to keep your mind from wandering. Uh, the building of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. You know, after all this exciting stuff, after the Red Sea is parted and water comes out of a rock and manna comes from heaven and all the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire and the Ten Commandments. And, and then there's this long period where it describes in intricate detail what the tabernacle is to be made up of. And it's hard. First time you ever read it, you go, oh my goodness. And then you get to chapter five, uh, chapter five of First Kings, and again in First Chronicles, it's the same thing. the The description of the building of the temple, which the temple is just an updated version, a permanent version of the tabernacle. And, and I'll tell you what it reminds me of. I, I know a pastor who had a, a man. This is a long, long time ago. A man in his church uh, who was chairman of his church's building committee. Now this was a small church in a small town. They had a monthly business meeting. My. <laughs> Bob knows. Um, and this guy, bless him, good man, um, but he felt like at every business meeting, he needed to give a full report of everything he'd done on the church building. And it would go something like this. Well, you know, this week I, I, I noticed that on the east side of the barn where we store the mower, there was paint that was peeling. So I managed to extract some of that paint and I took it to the hardware store in town and they didn't have any to match. So I drove to the next town over and they said, well, they don't have any, but they can order it. So it'll be here in approximately two weeks. Maybe by the next time we meet, I'll give a better report. But in the meantime, what I've done is I've done some sanding on, this, on the end of that building and, and I'm, I'm th thinking about priming it. That would get it ready for painting. So I'll go back to the hardware store this week, and I'll see if they've got some suitable primer for that. And meanwhile, you know, the pastor's just up there going, you know, it would take 10 minutes or so, and he'd say, I, I, I don't want to cut him off because I'm glad he does what he does. But, and you, you, God, you know, God knows our hearts. When we read these chapters, that's what it sounds like to us. It just sounds like this long repetition of details that we don't know anything about or care anything about, and yet... If you were an Israelite, especially an Israelite in biblical times, let's say in Jesus's generation, you would read these chapters the way you and I would read an account of the writing of the, of the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. In fact, the building of the temple meant more to them than the Declaration or the Constitution means to any American. So this was big stuff. This was important. And I would argue it still is, not just because it's in the Bible, but for other reasons that I'm going to get to. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a, a flying tour of these four chapters and then actually five chapters. I'm not good at math. And then uh, at the end, tell you some reasons why this matters to us today. So chapter five begins this way. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. Let me just pause and say, uh, this is, Tyre is a nation or was a nation. You remember from world history hearing about the Phoenicians. They were one of the advanced civilizations of the ancient world. These are the Phoenicians. 
They live north of Israel in present-day Lebanon. And during David's lifetime, Solomon's dad, he had made an alliance with Hiram, the king of Tyre, and they were good friends. So in, you know, Hiram sends his emissaries to Solomon wanting to know, are you and I going to be friends like your dad and I were friends? So with that as introduction, verse 2. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David my father could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. You know, notice that. What that means is David had confided in Hiram. This is how good of friends they were. My friend, fellow king, I want to build a temple to the glory of my God, but I can't. I'm spending all my time fighting battles, and God has told me my job is to defend and, and, and bring to security this nation. My son will build the house. And Solomon says, you know about all these plans. Now let's get it done. Verse 4, but the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Now therefore command that cedars of Lebanon be cut out for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. By the way, just quick question, trivia question. Anybody know what is on the flag of Lebanon today. Anyone? Cedar trees, that's right. Yeah, that's what Lebanon was known for. Uh, and so Solomon is saying, you guys are the best woodcutters in the world. You have the best, best cedar wood in the world. I'm asking you to supply this so we can get this done. And Hiram agrees. In fact, he rejoices that the Lord has given David such a son, such a wise son, such a son who has the right things at heart. This becomes the big building project of Solomon's life. The most important thing he ever does, essentially, is build this temple. Now, we'll skip ahead. The rest of chapter 5 is about the, the division of labor and who does the work. Um, but look at, but, but I think the main thing I want you to note about that is that Gentiles and Jews built the temple. A lot of people don't know that. The temple of Solomon was built by both Gentiles and Jews, Phoenicians and Israelites. All right, that, that's important, and I'll tell you why later. Verse chapter 6. The first verse of chapter 6 says, In the 400th year, 480th year, after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. So 480 years after the exodus. You notice 480 is, a divis is divisible by 12. That's an important number in Scripture. Anyway, in the 480th year, after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Zeev, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. If you like dates, scholars have, have with some degree of accuracy or, or precision, dated this to 966 B.C. So if you like that kind of thing, write it down. What's probably more interesting and important is the details of the, the building itself. By the way, we've got pictures. So Sharon, the first one. Okay, that's the interior of the temple. I'll talk about some of its features in a minute. But the temple, you ready for this? You want to know how big it was? It was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. 
That's just the interior. So the exterior was a little bigger, but don't you hear that and go, wow, that's really small. Our sanctuary is way bigger than that. And there's a reason for that. The temple was not a place where people gathered to sit in pews and listen to sermons and sing songs. The only people who went into the temple were priests. And we'll get into more of that in a moment. But just understand, you're not talking about a huge building. It was a big complex because there's an outer court, and we'll talk about that in a minute as well. But let me give you some more details. It was built on Mount Moriah, which is, uh, at the time, it was outside the city walls. Today, it's inside the old city of Jerusalem. And I'll show you a picture of that in a moment. But uh, Mount Moriah, there's two stories in the Bible about Mount Moriah. The first one is... Uh, when, when I think Genesis 22, when Abraham takes Isaac to sacrifice him to the Lord and the Lord stops him and replaces a, lamb, a, a ram for the son of man, right? Um, that's where this happened, Mount Moriah. It's not a mountain like we think of it. It's not the Rocky Mountains. It's a hill, a hill, the highest place in the city of Jerusalem. Second story is when David had sinned against the Lord and had brought a plague upon the people and he cried out to God and God said, sacrifice to me. And David said, I want to claim this land, this place where I saw the angel that was destroying Jerusalem. I want to sacrifice right here, but it belongs to this Israelite. And the Israelite said, well, take it. I I, I give it to you. And David said, I'm not going to sacrifice something to God that cost me nothing. I will pay you the, the going rate. That was here. David bought the property for the temple from that Israelite for the purpose of making a sacrifice. Now, a couple of other interesting things about this. The, the, what was the temple made of? Well, interior, the frame was made of cedar wood, but all the interior walls were covered in gold, uh, which you see in that picture of the interior, the the cross-section. The exterior was stone, and the stone was quarried by workmen that Solomon uh, enlisted. Here's one of the great details that the Bible tells us. There was no hammer. There was never the sound of a hammer used in in the construction of the temple. They did all the shaping, all the chiseling, all the forming of the stones at the quarry, and then brought the stones, and they just happened to fit perfectly. They fit them all together. So the only sound you heard was the sound of stones being moved. Now, as for how in the year 966 BC, they got these massive stones up that high, you need to ask someone other than me because we don't know. It's an amazing feat. Inside, I don't have a laser pointer, but Sharon, would you go back to the previous one? Okay, so you see on the left-hand side that, that looks like a wall Uh, with two winged figures there. That's the entrance to the Holy of Holies. So one third of the length of uh, of the temple was the Holy of Holies. And it was a perfect cube. The the room was, was exactly the same length, width, and height. And it was coated in gold top to bottom. Um, Those winged figures you see are called cherubim. Um, they were they stood 15 feet high. Um, you couldn't see them uh, except when you went inside, right? Uh, inside the Holy of Holies, there was just one thing, and that was the Ark of the Covenant. 
And inside the Ark of the Covenant was just one thing, and that was the, the tablets that Moses had brought down from Mount Sinai. Now, I assume they melted it and just formed it. It's called, it, it was, um, I forget the term, but overlaid with gold. Yeah. So um, now the rest of the, of the temple is called the holy place. That's the most holy place. The holy place had, uh, had just a few things. It had a, an altar that, on which you burned incense day and night. The incense um, represented the prayers of the people. By the way, back to the Holy of Holies, y'all know that the high priest was the only one that could go in there and only once a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. So it was only used one time a year and by one person. It was an elaborate system that that priest had to go through in order to go through that curtain. Um, but outside or out in that outer court, that outer part of the temple, uh, there was the incense altar. There was the table for the bread of the presence. So every day they would bake 12 loaves of bread, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And they would lay them out on that table and then the priests would eat them at the end of the day. Um, and there were lampstands, what we call menorahs. Um, and again, nobody but priests could go in. In fact, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, if you weren't a priest, but you were a Levite, one of your jobs when it came time to do your temple duty was standing guard and making sure no non-priest went inside because only holy people could go in. Think about that when the Bible talks about the priesthood of all believers. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, now, the courtyard, which was outside, you see on the bottom this, this round basin, the priest standing next to it. You'll see what I'm talking about? That was called the Bronze Sea, S-E-A. That was a big container. In fact, it was big enough it held 11,500 gallons of water. It was supported by these 12 uh, bronze bulls. Um, it was for the purpose of the high priest washing. Uh, or the priests washing themselves ritually to get inside. Uh, there were also these other smaller basins that were on wheels, and those were for washing as well, washing the animals before they were sacrificed. And you see up on the right outside, this is what a lot of people don't realize, that was the altar of burnt offering. So the sacrifices weren't offered inside the temple, they were offered outside. I've heard people say all the time, oh, it must have been really nasty inside there, all those animals being slaughtered and all that blood, but that took place outside. Um, so that's where the offerings were offered. And then um, the last detail, and then we'll get to chapter seven. Construction of this took seven and a half years. Seven and a half years to build the, build the temple. Chapter seven. So in chapter seven, we get the first hint that there's trouble. And it's verse one. Solomon was building his own house 13 years and he finished his entire house. So almost twice as long did Solomon spend building a temple or a palace for himself than he did to build the temple. Now the Bible doesn't comment on that. It doesn't say, and God was displeased or anything like that. Like I said last week, lots of times the Bible just describes, it doesn't prescribe, it trusts us to remember the commandments that were given and to judge the characters of Scripture based on those commands. One of the things that was commanded, in fact, I read it just today, Moses said, this is hundreds of years before, Moses said, 
in Deuteronomy, someday you might decide you want a king. And when you have a king, make sure he doesn't accumulate for himself lots of money and lots of horses and lots of wives. And Solomon broke all of those. And this is the first warning sign that in spite of all his wisdom and all the blessings God had given him, Solomon got addicted to his own greatness. This was the first warning sign of this. Um, the, the rest of chapter 7 is about a guy named Hiram, a different Hiram than the king, because this guy, chapter 7 tells us, is part Jewish. His mom was Jewish. His dad was Phoenician. This Hiram comes down from Sidon, and he's an artist, a craftsman, and he decorates all the temple and all the furnishings. They had overlaid everything with gold. He made sure and design, put designs on those walls, pomegranates and and trees and flowers and, and birds and other things, other things of beauty. Um, it, it's just a reminder that there's a place for beauty in God's kingdom and God's work. Uh, everything doesn't have to have a practical function in order to glorify God. That ought to make those of you who are artistic very happy to hear. And I, and I mean that. Everything doesn't have to have a practical function to be pleasing to God. Sometimes things are glorifying to God just because they're beautiful. All right. All right. Chapter eight. Now, chapter eight, we could spend a while just studying chapter eight. We won't. But chapter eight is one of the significant chapters in the whole Old Testament. Because in chapter eight, Solomon is finished with the construction and he gathers the whole nation of Israel together. In fact, he doesn't even have to gather them because it's during the Feast of Booths. There were three feasts festivals that the the Jews celebrated every year, those were festivals where you were supposed to go to Jerusalem, three pilgrimage festivals. The Jews were people who had a lot of festivals, but there were three where you were supposed to go to Jerusalem. This was one of them. Feast of Booths means you would go to Jerusalem and for seven days you would live in a booth or a temporary shelter. You'd You'd put it all together out of palm branches and leaves, this basic structure. It's kind of like camping. And the reason for it was to remind you that your ancestors wandered in the desert. They lived in tents for all these years. So I think it's significant that Solomon is dedicating the temple then because he's saying, look, look, you used to live in tents. Now you live in homes. The ark of God, the presence of God once lived in a tent, the tabernacle. Now he has a permanent home. What does that signify? We're not going anywhere. This is our home. We're no longer wanderers. We're no longer nomads. We are a people with a nation, with a land that God has given us. And so what Solomon does is he prays this very beautiful prayer, very eloquent prayer to the Lord. And I'll tell you, if you read that prayer, you'll get an indication of the heart of God. Because remember, God chose to put it in his word. That means it came from him. Solomon was praying with his own voice, but it was expressing the heart of God. You'll see what God's heart was for Israel and therefore God's heart for us. And I'll go further than that. If the Israelites had just read and heeded the prayer in 1 Kings 8, there would have been no need for any prophets because Solomon lays it all out, lays it out. This is what it means to follow God. This is what God wants from us. This is what he's promised us. This is what he'll do. All we have to do is obey. So let me give you just a snippet of the prayer that that I think you and I will find significant. Verse 27, this is in the middle of the prayer. He says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Because he started by saying, Lord, thank you for giving me the ability. Thank you for choosing me. 
to build this house for you. Thank you for promising to inhabit this temple. But then he says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God. Listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Solomon is saying, we've spent a lot of money and a lot of work. We've worked seven and a half years to build this. But we know that although you've chosen us as your people and you've let us build you this house, we can't contain you. We don't possess you. You possess us. You can go anywhere you want. You're everywhere at all times. If only the Israelite people had read that and put it, taken it to heart. Because they, over time, started to think of God as their own tribal deity, just like Baal or Asherah or Molech it's, or, or you know, Zeus or Ra or whoever you want to name. He's our God. He lives here when God is the God of the whole world. And God doesn't just care about Israel. He cares about every nation. They lost that idea. They missed what God was saying to them. And then he makes seven requests of God. So I want you to listen to these seven requests. First, he said, Lord, when neighbors disagree with one another and their judges can't figure out who's right and who's wrong, when they come to this temple and they ask your will, make your will clear so that there can be justice, so that there won't be disputes, so there won't be division among your people. Number two, he says, when we lose a battle and we're frustrated and we're sad and we don't know what to do, Lord, comfort us, show us what we need to repent of so that won't happen again. Number three, when there's a drought and all our crops are dying and we come and repent before you, forgive us of our sins and send rain. Number four, when there's a famine and we cry out to you and say, Lord, what have we done because you promised to give us food, but you're not giving us food, so we must have done something wrong. So Lord, show us what to do, then heal us and give us food. Number five, and this is very significant and surprising. On the day the temple is dedicated, he says, Lord, when foreigners come to this temple and call upon your name, because Solomon is expecting that the greatness of this temple, the greatness of God's presence in the land of Israel will radiate out into the world and people from all nations will come seeking him. When that happens, Lord, heed the cry of the foreigner and bring him into your family. Make, a, make him part of your people. Aren't you glad that's in there since most of us are foreigners to the land of Israel? Number six. When the army goes out to fight, when we've got a battle to fight, when a nation is, is troubling us and, and we're under threat, Lord, give us strength. Help us to defend your people and your temple. Number seven, he says, when we lose the land. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Solomon knew a day would come when that temple would be no more, when, when the land of Israel would be no more, when the God's people would be carried away to a distant land. He said, when that happens and we call upon you and we repent of our sins, Bring us home and heal us. See, if, if Israel had just listened, so much danger, so much trouble would have been avoided. But they didn't. That's the story of us. And then I, this makes me happy. The next thing that happens is Solomon blesses the people 
And then he offers up hundreds of thousands of bulls and sheep on the burnt offering, uh, not the burnt offering, but on the altar. And, and it's a fellowship offering. So there's different offerings in the Old Testament. The fellowship offering is when you don't burn it all up. You basically roast it and you share it amongst yourselves. So what Solomon does here is he basically throws a big barbecue. I mean, it's, a sanct it's sanctified. It's, it's to glorify God, but it's shared among the people. So imagine you're an Israelite farmer and, and all year long you're breaking your back and, and you maybe have meat on Passover and you've come to Jerusalem for the, for the Feast of Booths and the king shows up and says, come to the temple. And he prays this amazing prayer. And the spirit, the, the presence of God comes into the temple so thick that the priests can't even go in there. And so everyone in Israel, they've never seen this before. They see the glory of God for the first time. And then Solomon prays this prayer and, and, and dedicates it. And, and then he hands you a leg of lamb or he hands you a, a ribeye. And you say, this is all right. I think this is going to work out. I think we're going to be okay as a people. We've got a good king. Our God is with us. We've, we've got something no other nation has. And you see how that united the people. Because remember, it was just a few years ago, there was a dispute over who was really king. Now there's no question at all. Now there are one nation under one king under God. Now finally, chapter 9. Chapter 9 begins this way. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build. So how long is that? That's, that's in the 20th year of his reign. Or that's, that's after 20 years. He, he prayed the prayer after seven, and then he built that palace for 13. So this is a long time later. All right. Verse two, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you've made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Sharon, show me that next picture, if you would. Okay, that's the exterior. At least that's what we think. No one had iPhones or cameras, right? So we have no contemporary image of what the, the temple looked like. This is our best guess based on the description in scripture. And in a, to an ancient culture, that would have been an exciting place to go. That would have been exciting to see. Uh, to a people who lived in one-story one homes. But the bad news is that 400 or so years later, the Babylonians came and took that down. They burned it. They, they leveled it. It was gone. And the people were carried away into exile. Seventy years later, they came home, or at least a portion of them. Not everybody. Plenty of Israelites still lived in the lands of, of Persia. I mean, that's why there's a book of Esther, right? Those were, those were Jews who were living in, in Persia long after the Jews had returned to Israel. And when they first got back to Israel, they didn't rebuild the temple at first. They started, they laid the foundation, but 
it was hard living in, in the new nation of Israel. They, were, they had enemies all around them, including the Samaritans, and they were being harassed. So it was many years before the prophets Haggai and Zechariah came along and said, hey, you guys are building your own houses, build God a house. And they finally completed. The second temple, which I don't have a picture of, was not as impressive as the first. Old men and women who were alive and remembered the first temple wept when they saw the new one because they said it doesn't approach the glory of the former one. But then along comes a guy named Herod. And Herod decided, you know, the Jews don't like me because I'm not pure blood Jewish and I'm not, I'm not, I don't live the way they like, but I'll win them over by re renovating their temple. And so for decades, they did this incredible work. And I'm not going to, I don't have a picture to show you of that, but the, the temple that Jesus walked into when he did his ministry was magnificent. It was massive. It was glorious. It was shining white. It sat up there on Mount Moriah. You could see it as you were approaching Jerusalem from miles away. And it looked like a snow-capped mountain as you were approaching the city. And then in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed it. Okay, I want to show you the Temple Mount today. So the third picture, Sharon, that's modern Jerusalem. So what you see in the foreground is the plaza in front of the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. So that wall you see right in front of you, that's all that is left of the temple. Just one of the outer walls. Everything else is gone. Um, interesting, this picture was taken during the... Uh, during the pandemic. And so that's why there's so few people there. Anybody who's been there knows it's usually packed with people. So in the distance, you see that gold dome? That's where the original temple was. That is uh, the Dome of the Rock, which is an Islamic shrine. It's been there for centuries. Ironically, it's been there longer than either temple ever sat on the Temple Mount. Uh, the Muslims put it there because they believe that's where uh, Muhammad ascended into heaven on a horse with the face of a man, don't ask. Um, there's also on the Temple Mount, there's the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So a mosque and an Islamic shrine. If you go there today, if you're, if you're a Muslim, you can enter through the Muslim quarter, no problem. If you're a non-Muslim, there's this set of wooden stairs, this, this wooden bridge that leads you up to the Temple Mount. Um, it's interesting. It's, it's a very contentious place. I, I don't I always get a little on edge when I'm up there because I know if there's going to be trouble, it's going to be there um, because it's, it's so contentious. Um, in fact, you can tell because you see army people all around Jerusalem and they're usually 18, 20 year old people. You can tell they're just, they're doing their, their required military service. They're not worried. They're carrying their gun. They look official, but they're not upset. You get on the Temple Mount and the people on duty, they're hardened guys. They, they're people you don't want to mess with because they, they know you got to have your best people up there, tough guys who are going to tamp down any trouble. Okay, I tell you all that to say. If you're an Israelite and you read these in the Old Testament or the New Testament era, what does this do? It reminds you that God kept his promise to Abraham, to Moses to David. The temple was a symbol to them that God is a holy God and they are a holy people. He keeps his promises 
and he has chosen them and he won't reject them. There was nothing like it on earth. Other nations, every nation had a temple, but God's temple didn't have a statue in it because God can't be captured. God cannot be, cannot be described in physical terms. He's bigger than that. Now, what does it say to us? Three things. This story is a reminder that God wants to be with us. Don't forget that. Somebody's pointed out, and this, this kind of renovated my idea of my understanding of all this stuff. The temple, the design of the temple was intentional. All the instructions came directly from God. There was no architect that built this. The architect and designer was God himself. And God designed it in such a way that every Israelite would have gotten the message. It was a mini Garden of Eden. So you remember the Garden of Eden story, right? Humanity walked with God and then they got kicked out because they sinned. Garden of Eden on the east side of Eden had two cherubim that guarded it so no person could get back in. What was on the exterior wall of the temple? Two cherubim facing east. So it was, it was saying, okay, I'm letting you back in. Inside, you've had that, that, uh, that menorah. And in fact, the, the different candle holders in the menorah were shaped like leaves. So it was essentially the tree of life. The law was there, the law of the covenant, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The, the throne of God was there, the mercy seat on top of the ark where God dwelt, where we were guaranteed when the priest goes in there, he is meeting with God. He is making atonement for our sins. So in every way, it was God reversing the curse. He was saying, okay, you've been kicked out of my presence. I am giving you a way to come back into my presence and make things right. It was a mini garden of Eden. But it, all, it doesn't just point backwards. For us New Testament believers, we know more. Because remember what I said about the Holy of Holies. It's a perfect golden cube, right? When you read in Revelation 21 and the new Jerusalem is described, how does John describe it? He says it was like a bride dressed for her husband coming down out of heaven. And then he gives it dimensions. And when you, when you pay attention to those dimensions, you find out the city of God is a perfect cube and it's made of gold. The Holy of Holies was pointing forward to the place where we will live with God forever. Amen, indeed. John 1.14, the very beginning of the Gospel of John, it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt in Greek is the same word as the word tabernacle. So God came and made His home, His tabernacle, His temple among us. Why? Because he wants to be with us. Every other religion preaches a God who lives high up on a mountain. You have to get to him. God comes to us. That's what the temple means. Number two, it reminds us that worship is important. Now, I love being a Baptist. I'm glad I am. If that's all I've ever been in terms of Christian, I will be until I get to heaven when those things won't matter. One of the problems with being a Baptist is we have a tendency to devalue worship. And you're like, oh, what do you mean, Jeff? We, we go to church every Sunday. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. Absolutely, that's biblical. I don't have to be a priest to enter into the presence of God. I don't have to be a priest to confess my sins to the Lord. I don't have to be a priest to pray or to interpret God's word or to serve. All of that's great. But we tend to forget when God wanted to be worshipped, He had very specific requirements for how it was to be done. This is not something to be entered into casually. 
This is not something to be entered into thoughtlessly. So let's remember how important worship is. And, and not to pick on anybody, but when you think about how important worship is to God, that ought to make us think, you know, shame on me for saying, eh, I couldn't get ready in time this morning. I'll just watch it on the screen. God cares. It's not something to be consumed like a TV show. Now, if you're sick, if you're infirm, if you're out of town and that's better than nothing, absolutely. But make an effort to be there. Make an effort to have your heart right with God. Make an effort to, to participate. Worship is important to him because we see it in the construction of the temple. God didn't just say, wherever you find a building, just go in there and, and, and you know, whatever God lays on your heart to do. No, he had specific instructions for a reason, because it's important how we approach him. But then third, we know there's a new temple. And this isn't in the story in 1 Kings, but we see it in the New Testament. So I want to give you three scriptures. John 2, 19 through 21. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. He's talking about the resurrection. Now, if you ask me, and you didn't, but in my opinion, most of the Jewish leaders, the reason they wanted Jesus dead was because they thought he threatened the temple. If you would have asked one of the Sanhedrin, for instance. Why do you want to kill this man? They would have said, well, if we let him run amok, the Romans are going to come take away our temple. That's how important the temple was to them. That was their identity. They, they just believed if you destroy the temple, no one will be able to get to God anymore. And Jesus was running around saying things like this. And people were flocking to him. And the Romans might get nervous if they saw a big movement. They might decide it was some kind of revolution. And they might say, okay, that's it. I believe that's why the Jews wanted him dead. The Jewish leaders wanted him dead was they were afraid they would lose the temple. And guess what? They lost it anyway. Jesus was saying, you don't need a temple anymore. In fact, in, in Matthew 24, he foretold what would happen in AD 70. The temple is going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left on top of another. He said, you don't need it anymore. You don't need to come to the Holy of Holies. I am the Holy of Holies. You don't need a high priest. I am the high priest. You don't need a sacrifice. I will be the sacrifice. Jesus was saying, I'm the new temple. But then he went further. The New Testament goes further. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You've heard people say your body is a temple. And that's usually for a, an advertisement for a gym or a diet plan. Nonsense. Your body is a temple in the sense that God inhabits the life of every believer in Jesus. And so therefore, for a person to get to know, to get to know God, all they have to do is meet a person in whom the Holy Spirit of God lives. You are a walking temple. People can come, they can meet you, they can hear the gospel, they can encounter God and they can be saved in a more permanent way than anything that went on in the temple on Mount Moriah. Now that's how we each individually are temples, but we're also a temple corporately. And this is what I mean. The last scripture I'm going to give you, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. 
This is Paul writing. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What is he talking about, strangers and aliens? He's talking to Gentiles. He's talking to us. Remember how I said the first temple was built by both Jews and Gentiles. What Paul is saying is God is building a new temple and some of the stones he's using will be Jewish stones and some of them will be Gentile stones, but it's all going to come together to form one building, one building in God. And that's the miracle of the church is that the whole world has all these racial issues, including our own country, and the church is supposed to be the place where all of that is solved, where Jesus loves the little children, red and yellow, brown, black, and white. And my Hispanic friends made me throw in that brown. You know, they taught me that a long time ago. Red, brown, yellow, black, and white. Jesus, they are precious in his sight, right? We sing that song, we should mean it. We should be a place where all those colors, all those races come together. And there's not strife, but there's brotherhood, there's sisterhood. And when the world sees that, they'll be drawn because we've solved a problem they can't solve. All right, so... Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Be very careful how you talk about the church. I don't just mean First Baptist Conrad. I mean the church capital C. Be very careful. Sure, call out heresy when you see it, when it's real heresy and not just, well, those people preach a different scheme of the end times than we believe. Uh, not secondary stuff. I mean, when the true gospel is at stake, call it out. Uh, when there's bad behavior going on, call it out, confront it. But we are one in Christ. And we are supposed to be a holy temple to God. When you criticize the body of Christ, you're criticizing his temple. Think about how serious that is. We are the place people meet God. Can someone get saved and never be part of a church? Sure, but that's not the way God chooses to do his work. I heard somebody a long time ago say, the church is God's plan A for rescuing the world from sin and there's no plan B. So if we don't do it, God's not gonna send others. It's us, it's our job. Now. Back to that picture. So I've been there four times. And I realize how fortunate I am to do that. And it's my favorite city on earth. I can't wait to see the new Jerusalem. But it is sad. It is sad to go up on that Temple Mount and see there's no temple there anymore. And there's a part of me that wishes that temple was still standing. I want to see the place where Jesus went and uh, where he spoke to the priests and asked them questions when he was just a little boy. And then when he came back and cleared out that big courtyard, the court of the Gentiles, because he was so enraged at the unholiness that was going on there. I want to see where he taught. I want to see where all these great things took place. But it's gone. And it's not coming back. And you know what? That's God's will. If God wanted a temple there, he would put it there. The good thing is when we look at two Islamic centers on the Temple Mount, we're reminded that when Jesus died, the curtain was torn into from top to bottom. When Jesus died, when he said it is finished, the, the veil between God and humans was removed forever. We don't need a physical 
temple. Hallelujah. We don't need, there's no one place you go and oh, now I'm on holy ground. Everywhere you go, you are on holy ground because God is in you if you're in him. And hallelujah for that. So congratulations and praise God. We are the new temple by his grace. All right, went a little longer tonight. Forgive me. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your word and for most of all, Lord, that in spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, you want to be with us and you've made it possible for us to be with you. Lord, I thank you that we now have uh, access to you anytime we need it, anytime we want. We can dwell with you 24-7. And Lord, that should be our desire. Help us to take worship as seriously as you are and to rejoice in you. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.